Welcome, welcome. Disability Law Show. We're back at it. James Fireman is here. Tamara Gopian is here. Both Samfiru Tamarkin LLP reaching out is what you're encouraged to do. Love you listening to the Hour of Radio, but if you want to follow up afterwards, always uh, ready for you. one 821 5900 for that toll-free phone call and chat on your own time. Email help at disabilityrights.ca. That's where we're going momentarily. And there's another venue called mydisabilityquestions.com. That's free and anonymous and your ability to ask and type questions there on uh, whatever device, your tablet, uh, your phone, your desktop. It doesn't matter. It's free and it's searchable. So a similar question to yours may already be up in the database. You can search it before you uh, you do that. So there you go. Lots to get through on the uh, show. Week that was or case of the day, whatever you want to call it james what do you got cooking this week well i had a lady contact me the other day and it's because she was denied her benefits on the basis of a pre-existing exclusion so this is something that we talk about from time to time and usually we talk about it after the fact when someone is in the situation as the person was that contacted me this week and what we can do about it at that point. So I'll talk about that a little bit, but then I wanna talk about it prospectively for people who are potentially gonna get caught in this situation and what you can do about it in advance. So first of all, what is the pre-existing exclusion? So every long-term disability policy that I've seen has what's called a pre-existing exclusion clause that will operate in the first year typically of your benefits. So if you come to a new employer and you go on their disability benefits plan, you're gonna change insurers. So you're gonna be insured under that policy starting usually on the date of employment. And so during your first year of coverage under that plan, if you become disabled during that year, the pre-existing exclusion clause would operate to deny any claim where the disability that you are uh, that you are asserting is preventing you from working, if that was something that you had before you became insured, before you started your new job, then you would not be entitled to the benefits. There are different ways that this can be written. And so for pre-existing exclusion clauses, it's really important to know exactly what your policy says, because there are significant variations. Some pre-existing exclusion clauses will only look at a short period of time before you became insured, sometimes 90 days. So the insurance company will say, if you get disabled within the first year, they want to see 90 days before you became insured. Was there any treatment for that disability, either for, for that disability or something that is indirectly related to that disability? And so that language directly or indirectly related to that disability is what we often see, which can cast a pretty broad net, especially when we're talking about mental health issues. And so a lot of times there are people that are going to get caught in this, not because they've done anything wrong, but because they are suffering from a mental health disability within that first year. And if they've had any treatment during those three months prior to their coverage, then the insurer is going to do a review. And if they see in the clinical notes and records that you had any treatment, then coverage will be denied. And treatment is usually defined and often it's defined very broadly, to which I mean, certainly anytime that you've gone to see a doctor specifically about that condition, but also even if there's something that is well under control, that you are taking medication 
you know, let's say there is a daily antidepressant low dose that you've been taking for five years. It's not something that is interfering with you on a day-to-day basis. It's well-managed. And then it becomes significantly worse within a few months, even if you haven't seen your doctor in those three months, but you are getting prescriptions filled and, and taking that medication, that will count as treatment. And so again, it's very broadly defined. And so this is something that you need to be aware of, particularly if you're in a situation where you're contemplating making a career change, either into a new occupation or just a new employer. And as a result, you're going to be starting under a new disability benefits plan. It's really important that you understand that during that first year, you may well not have coverage for any disability if that disability is directly or indirectly related to something that has been an issue for you in the past. And keep in mind, I gave the example of 30 or or sorry, 90 days before coverage started. There are some policies that say at any point in the past. So you really wanna understand what that policy says, which can be really tricky when you're looking at whether or not to start a new job, because if you start asking questions about, well, can I get the specifics of your disability policy? That's probably gonna raise red flags with a potential employer. And so what I'm suggesting is if you're in a situation where you're looking at changing jobs uh, or changing occupations, and you're gonna be covered under a new plan, it is worthwhile considering what you think is likely to happen over the next year. If your health is precarious in any way, and you think that there is any reasonable chance that you may become disabled over the next year, then you may be better served not making that move. I'm not telling you that you should or you shouldn't, but I am saying that it is really important that you're aware of that potential issue and that that is something that you factor into your decision-making because it can have really dire consequences if you're unaware of it and you do become disabled in that first year. And it's something that most people just don't understand until it's too late. And so I think it's really important if you're out there and you're thinking about making that career change, but your health is tenuous, whether it's your physical health or your mental health, and you feel that there's any reasonable chance that you may become disabled in the next year. I mean, I know we don't have crystal balls. We we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but if you feel as though you are one or two you know, events that are outside of your control from being disabled, then maybe it's worth considering whether the timing is right for the career change now or whether it's better to wait. Uh, so that's really what I wanted to make sure people understand because oftentimes it is just something that is really beyond people's comprehension before they make that move. And if it's something that uh, might apply to you, it's worth considering. Tamar? Yeah, really great topic because for one, it's a very technical decline, right? And it's it's technical because it's a very uh, specific wording and there's a few things that go into whether or not the insurance company has properly applied it. So I appreciate James bringing it up at the top of our show for that reason and because it seems to me, and look, maybe this is just the last few weeks, but I, I'm seeing a lot more declines on this pre-existing condition clause. And I don't know if it's because insurers are now being much more vigorous about training their adjusters to look at this right from the start, or whether or not they've, a few of them have changed their policies to include the kind of wording James mentioned about directly or indirectly. Cause I know some insurers didn't have that wording for a while in their pre-existing condition clauses. Either way, 
I think it is one that's important where people understand that there could potentially be a path forward if the insurer has not done the proper analysis. For example, and one that I see uh, a few, I've seen a few times uh, in the last little while is when the employer actually changes carriers, when they change insurance companies, and there's a new insurance company for the LTD benefit, it doesn't necessarily mean that new insurer can apply the pre-existing condition clause. And I've seen insurers do that. So it you might be newly insured with them and therefore be in that first year of coverage with that new insurer. But if you've been with your employer beyond that one year, then I don't think the insurance company is correct in saying we can apply the pre-existing condition clause to your situation. So again, very technical arguments here, but ones that are important just because your employer chose a new insurer doesn't mean it resets the clock for everyone who's been insured under their plans for the last, you know, five years, let's say, for example. The other technical situation that tends to come up, and we saw this a lot during the COVID period, where people were being put on layoffs and they were being given the option of continuing their extended health coverage or stopping their extended health coverage. And some people opted not to continue their benefits and therefore there was a period of time where they weren't covered for long-term disability benefits or perhaps there was a break in that service with their employment well then if you were to be reinsured again some insurers were taking the position that employees were fresh employees and that reset the clock for pre-existing condition clauses now this one's a real really technical one and maybe one that we say for our employment law shows but at the end of the day, what I want to get across to people is just because your insurance company has written you a four-page or five-page letter saying you're denied for a pre-existing condition clause doesn't necessarily mean they've got it right. And so it does give us a good opportunity to have a good free consult. Let us take a look at it. It's not straightforward. There's going to be lots of questions asked because there are a lot of moving parts with these kinds of clauses. But at the end of the day, there could be a path forward. And I entirely agree with James. When you're thinking about changing jobs or what's happening with your employment status, you want to make sure that you do turn your mind to your disability coverage and what's happening with that, particularly if you've got ongoing health issues that you're managing with your doctor. Will they yeah, fight? And, I know. And, and, sorry, oh, sorry, James, I was going to say, we got. I know we got a break in a couple of minutes, but will they automatically fight you on that? Is it a knee-jerk reaction and is it a tough battle, the pre-existing clause of the insurance company? They dig their heels in tight? Well, when you do make a claim in the first year of coverage, they'll automatically do a review. And so if there's anything that they can sink their teeth into when they right. do that review, which will involve getting your medical records, often OHIP summaries, uh, clinical notes and records from your treating doctors, they'll take a look at whatever the relevant time period is. And if there's anything that they can sink their teeth into, then they'll take a run at it because that's what their objective is. They want to find a justification for denying or terminating benefits. And so at the application stage, if they can apply the pre-existing exclusion, they certainly will. And it's particularly tricky when you're dealing with mental health conditions. You'll frequently see somebody who has a long history of manageable depression and then they'll develop, let's say, anxiety a few months after they start working, and the insurer will say, well, you were suffering from depression, and that's indirectly related. Well, not so fast. Depression is not anxiety. The Joker isn't the Riddler. These are different <laughs> things. Yeah. They can be related, but it's not necessarily because they're both there that they are related. Just because they're both mental health doesn't mean that they're treated as just one thing. It's much more complicated. 
Let's get into a quick break, guys. We got lots of emails and other questions on the way. You can reach out by phone too as we get into our break. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at disabilityrights.ca, and we'll continue more of the disability law show. Stand by. Welcome back, disability law show. That's what the show is. We do it every week, and you're joined by James Fireman, Tamara Gopi, and reaching out to them is always encouraged. One eight five five eight two one. 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address. That is where we're going, guys. First one for this hour comes from Colston. Says, guys, I've been off work on stress leave for the past few months due to anxiety and depression. I was denied short-term disability benefits because the insurer said there wasn't enough evidence of a disabling condition. I've sent a report from my doctor and the disability form, so I have no idea what they want. I have no money coming in, and this is increasing my stress. To make matters worse, I was rear-ended last week and injured my neck and back. My auto insurance is offering to pay some therapy. Does this affect my disability claim? I'm so overwhelmed, and I could really use some help. What do you guys think? Wow. Complicated stuff, Colson. So there's a... There's a lot going on here. The good news is that all of the members of our disability team also have experience with motor vehicle law in Ontario, which is particularly complicated. And that's significant because it's critical if you have two different claims that are related as a disability claim and a motor vehicle claim, particularly where the motor vehicle collision arises after the disability. Uh, it's really important that you have a lawyer that understands both, understands how they interact with each other, and is going to be able to put you in a position to maximize your overall recovery as opposed to one or the other where it may not result in a better overall compensation package for you. So that's really critical, and that's something that everyone on our team is well-versed in. So how does this work? First of all, addressing Colson's first question about what it is that your insurer is looking for. It's impossible to say without looking at the evidence you've submitted, but that doesn't mean that the evidence that you've submitted is insufficient. It just means that your insurer is taking that position, which is no surprise. That is what their incentive is. Insurance companies are in business to make money for their shareholders. That's how they operate. And they do that by denying claims by cutting off benefits or denying claims. They want to take in premiums and pay out as little as they possibly can. So the fact that they've denied you in this particular case doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't enough there, but it could be. I don't know. I haven't seen what your doctor has written or the disability form. So that's something that I would really only be able to address by taking a much closer look at it. Um, But, you know, obviously I'm skeptical to start with. In terms of what, what the the motor vehicle collision and the payment by your auto insurer does with the claim. So it isn't something that I would be at all concerned about. My standard advice to anybody who's in this position is when you're being offered money, either from your own insurance uh, or from government assistance, and it's something that um, you know isn't necessarily in settlement of anything, that it is always going to be in your interest to take what is available to you. So if you have Uh, benefits available through the government, whether it's uh, EI benefits or CPP disability benefits or ODSP, or you have benefits through your auto insurance that are going to help pay for treatment, you should take it. And if it is an offset against any other benefits that you may be entitled to, then so what? 
worst case scenario is that you're getting that early. So it isn't something that I would be overly concerned about. In this case, having your auto insurer pay for therapy, there's no impact directly on your disability claim. What it would do, though, the fact that you have this uh, motor vehicle collision after you've become disabled is it would strengthen the claim that you are disabled at least from the point of the motor vehicle collision onwards and the fact that you are requiring treatment specifically for injuries suffered in the accident would support that it doesn't necessarily mean anything conclusively though because there's that time period from when you became disabled up until the car accident you would still need to be able to prove that you had a disability during that time. And this just goes back to your first question about what else do the, does the insurance company need? Again, I would need to take a look at the documents that you've submitted, but they may well be sufficient. And if they are, then it just means it's time to litigate. Simple as that. Tomorrow. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I was focusing on that first part, but but fair point that there could be some benefits in pursuing the uh, the auto side as well. So I, you know, what the what we're driving at in terms of that short-term claim, Colson, is that you do have to demonstrate total disability in that period of time, and with with primarily mental health claims, when that kind of a claim is being presented to the disability insurer, my advice to people is you have to treat the adjuster like almost like a baby, like spoon feed the information to them. Okay, I use I use that word those words a lot because they do not understand the symptoms or require validation, I guess, of those symptoms medically because of, you know, these ideas around it being subjective and how disabling is it. And there's still a lot of misconceptions and notions around mental health claims and, you know, whether or not you could continue working and frankly get treatment. You know, some adjusters have lobbed that back against claimants to say, well, look, lots of people have mental health conditions and they still work. And so, you know, right out of the gates when you're making that kind of application, you want to make sure that the doctor is being very detailed on the symptoms and the amount of impact those symptoms are having on you day to day, separate and apart from the motor vehicle claim. And then what I might be inclined to do is if the motor vehicle claim and the injuries around that, like the neck and back issues, are also contributing to the overall mental health status, Maybe it is a good time to have another report from the doctor commenting on all that. Because when you've got mental health conditions and then subsequent physical symptoms, it makes sense that all of it together would most certainly disable someone from working as well. But I agree with James, you know, insurers are very focused on establishing that first period of disability, regardless of what may have happened afterwards. But my view is, is that if there are things that happen afterwards or other health issues that arise in the period of disability, it's all fair game disability insurer and you should be considering all of it. So if I'm sitting in Colson's shoes, lots to think about um, and certainly one that, you know, we're well primed to discuss with him, you know, whether it be on the uh, personal injury or vehicle side of things or the disability. I want to move on to another email, guys. This one's good. This one comes from uh, Mikey. Mikey writes in, says, uh, my doctor has told me repeatedly that I can't work due to fibromyalgia, fatigue, and severe anxiety. He is very clear that I'm not able to do any kind of work and should not be attempting to do so. He has said this to my insurance company as well. However, my insurance cut off my benefits because they said my doctor told them I wasn't totally disabled, using quotation signs, totally disabled. I don't understand what is happening. If my doctor says I can't work, shouldn't that be enough? 
should be enough. It should be enough, Mikey, <laughs> but it's it sounds to me like the doctor, they're relying on your own doctor's opinion. And so you, you want to talk to your doctor. I mean, does your doctor understand what totally disabled is? I mean, we talk about this term. It's, it's a misnomer, isn't it? Right, guys? Like, I mean, it, it's one where I think doctors look at and think, perhaps, that my patient needs to be bedridden in order to be qualifying for this test of total disability. And it's genius. I mean, insurance companies have come up with it. And, you know, they've come up with a definition in their policies. But that definition isn't always known to claimants like Mikey or their doctors. And, and fair enough. Why should it? Right. But I think it is an important discussion that Mikey needs to have with his doctor because totally disabled, defined in most of these policies, really is only limited to whether or not Mikey could do, you know, essential duties of an occupation. And we talk about this in the first two years, it's your own occupation. I'm not certain exactly what Mikey does as, a, as an occupation, but mm-hmm. assuming he's still in the own occupation phase, it's really looking at those essential tasks and seeing whether or not all of his health issues prevent him from doing those tasks. And I would have that discussion with your doctor because perhaps it was an error that was put over or, or an improper opinion or something that can be easily corrected by the doctor to clarify that with the insurer. I'm, I'm not certain. But the, the fact that he's been cut off, though, also concerns me because then I'd want to further evaluate, you know, does it make sense for Mikey actually to submit more medical? That would be an appeal. And if he's being resisted already, despite the fact that there's overwhelming evidence and support by his doctor that he is actually disabled, then it may be one that to make that it makes sense to start just the legal claim and not pursue, you know, what the insurance company wants you to do, which is send us more medical okay, we're going to look at this, send us more medical, maybe we'll look at it, maybe we'll get someone else to look at it. You know, the uncertainties around that can certainly add to a profile where someone already has very severe anxiety, not to mention the fatigue and the fibromyalgia. And so I'd want to look at this a little deeper and really try and figure out, you know, what did the doctor actually say? And is there a disconnect from the doctor's understanding of what it is that he or she prepared for the insurance company? James, what do you think? Well, I had the same concern you did about the understanding of totally disabled as a concept, because as you mentioned, it is not what it sounds like. And that's entirely by design. Totally disabled is a defined term in every disability policy. Sometimes it's just called disabled, sometimes it's called totally disabled. But the definition is functionally the same from policy to policy, and it is strictly a matter of whether you have a medical condition that is interfering with your ability to function at work. It's only about your ability to work. But when you hear that phrase, totally disabled, it is not something that is commonly understood to mean disabled from work. When people hear the phrase totally disabled, it conjures up the image of somebody who is incapable of doing virtually anything for themselves. If you're totally disabled, someone says, oh, my my sister is totally disabled. I'm thinking of somebody who isn't able to feed themselves, who isn't able to get dressed or to get out of bed or to bathe by themselves. That's what I'm thinking about. Somebody who needs to be waited on, somebody who needs somebody to do their day-to-day grocery shopping or what have you. Not just simply somebody who is disabled from work, but that's what it means under the policy. If you are totally disabled under the policy, you may well still be able to do many, many things. You certainly 
can be disabled from work and be able to get out of bed and be able to make yourself your your meals or go do your grocery shopping. You can be disabled from work and do an awful lot of things. The only issue is whether or not you have a disability that is preventing you from doing your occupation. And that may or may not impact various aspects of your life. But when you hear the phrase totally disabled, if you don't understand what it means, it will lead you to the wrong conclusion. And let me tell you, that's not an accident. The insurance <laughs> companies chose that phrase quite, quite purposefully because people will be confused by it. And if that's what's happening, if Mikey's doctors say, well, you know, Mikey can't work, but he's not totally disabled, then that's just a misunderstanding of how it's worded in the insurance policy. And that's not necessarily his doctor's fault. That's just because the insurance company has chosen this deceptive language in order to mislead people and get to the same result. So I would really want to understand whether that's what's happening here, whether Mikey's doctor has been provided with what the actual definition of totally disabled means under the policy. And if that's actually the question that Mikey's doctor is answering, because if it's not, Mikey's doctor is simply saying that he's not totally disabled that still very much leaves open the question of whether or not he can work. And at least according to what Mikey has written to us, his doctor has told him that he can't. So again, just because the insurance company is saying one thing, don't take it at face value. You need to look deeper than that. And if they're saying you're not totally disabled, but everyone else, including your own doctors is telling you that you are, don't accept that you need to continue forward. Give us a call and let's start a, a legal claim and get the money you're entitled. So, Mikey, a bit of homework for you, pal. Reach out by phone to James and Tamar and get this uh, get this cleared up for sure. That number, as we get into a short break, is one eight five five eight two one. 5,900 more of your emails and questions are on the other side, help at disabilityrights.ca and the website, which is free and anonymous for you to use and do the same thing. Ask questions for the show and beyond is mydisabilityquestions.com. We continue with the Disability Law Show. Hang in. And welcome back. Disability Law Show. Good to have you for the ride. A couple different ways to reach out. Phone call might be your primary, one 821 5900 to reach James or Tamar. Help at disability, uh, pardon me, help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address we always go to. And uh, you can always use ltdfaq.ca. It's exactly what it sounds. Frequently asked questions laid out for you uh, via website, ltdfaq.ca. I know this is a, a favorite of yours, Tamar, right? It is because it's so so people will contact us, John, about various questions, you know, and I was thinking about it as we were uh, answering Mikey's email around, you know, how do we dispel these kinds of notions around total disability with our doctors? You know, what do we you know, how do we deal with these these words and terms? And our website, the LTDFAQ.ca, has these excellent two, three page memos that we've prepared and one in which specifically address. I think there's actually two one that addresses doctor's reports and one that's a guide that you can actually provide to your doctor to inform him or her around, you know, what do insurance companies expect? How can you support your patient while they're going through this disability process? There's a whole host of um, really good uh, pieces of nuggets of information. And I like it because I will speak to people and oftentimes I'll send them those memos after I speak with them as part of the overall consultation that we do just because, 
I do think there's a there's an imbalance of power, frankly, between insurance companies and the information that they have and the knowledge that they have versus claimants who most likely have never gone through this process before. This is the first time they're dealing with a disability, let alone the disability insurer and everything that's required there. And on top of everything else, the doctors and the referrals and the treatment and all the paperwork. And so really our focus is to try and push out as much free information for people as we can includes our shows, obviously, YouTube videos, and these memos. And so I think that if people are looking for places to start in terms of getting that info, um, lots of helpful tools out there that that uh, that we've created to help people. You know, it's interesting. There's a bit of a, uh, you know, a fear factor with, with clients when they call you guys about, you know, the process of how it works and dealing with the insurance company. You know, you talk about legal claims, most of them or a lot of them settling during mediation or even before. What happens if they don't settle at mediation? Do they go right to trial? Because people hate that trial word, right? It scares them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's not the case. They don't just immediately go to trial if they don't resolve at mediation. Not at all. So to put this into perspective, and I, I'd be curious to hear how Tamar's numbers line up here, but in my experience, I'd say somewhere between 90 and 95% of my files will wind up resolving at or before mediation. Wow. It, that can vary, and the, you know, certainly there are cases that are going to be more difficult, and that might be evident early on. But for most disability cases, the insurers are very eager to come to the table and get something resolved. And so, first of all, that should be a reasonable expectation that's going to be resolved at or before mediation. But that said, you can't go into mediation with the uh, with the idea that you're just going to take whatever the best offer is on the table. You have to make sure that you're getting something reasonable. And you always have to be prepared to walk away from the mediation unless the insurer is going to be reasonable. But what happens in that circumstance? So where a case does not resolve at mediation, the next step is typically going to be either to set the case down for trial if you've already gone through examinations or go through examinations. Uh, and so the examination for discovery process is fairly straightforward. It typically will take a few hours for, uh, for my clients where they're gonna be asked questions by the insurance company's lawyer. It isn't a huge process, uh, but it's something that I would prepare my clients for in advance, and that would take a few hours. And once that's done, then the case could be set down for trial. And what that simply means is that we would send a notice to the court advising that we're ready for the case to move forward into the trial process. But that doesn't mean that the trial is going to be imminent, because unfortunately, as most people who do any uh, research on this topic, particularly looking at, at, the, at the news reports, will understand the timeline for getting a trial is much longer than anyone would like. So if we were to set a case down for trial today, my expectation is we would likely not get a case in front of a judge before 2026, maybe late 2026. And so that means there's a couple of years after you set the case down for trial before it actually gets there. And in between setting it down for trial and trial, you can have any number of different possibilities to try and get the case resolved. In every instance, there's gonna be what's called a pretrial. So if you haven't already got the case resolved and it's getting reasonably close to trial, there'll be a pretrial date set with a judge that could not be a judge at trial. And 
those judges who are at the pretrial that both parties have to attend, their mandate is to try and get as many of these cases resolved because they have this huge backlog. And so the courts and the judges want to get rid of as many of these cases as they can. So they'll do what they can to try and get both sides to come together. And oftentimes, even if you can't get the case resolved at mediation, when you have trial coming up around the corner, all of a sudden people start getting a little bit more realistic about what their case actually involves. And that's true for the plaintiff side and the insurance side, to be quite blunt about it. And that's fair enough. And so very rarely does a case go beyond the pre-trial stage. Uh, and if it does, there are still opportunities to resolve it even after pre-trial before trial. I would say across the country in most years, there are probably something like five to 10 Probably that's overstating it. Five to ten long-term disability cases that will go to trial and reach a verdict. It is probably less than ten. Probably you can count it on one hand in most years. Tomorrow, I'm curious whether your experience lines up with that, both in terms of settlement and in terms of uh, the likelihood of trial. Absolutely. Actually, the, the stats, you're, you're absolutely right. I think very few cases go to trial. The vast majority of my cases settle at mediation or before mediation, sometimes through direct negotiation. You know, I think what, you know, our listeners may not appreciate is that insurance companies are very risk adverse. And the number of times that we've seen trial decisions, at least in the last, I don't know, I want to say five, 10 years, I mean, they've been absolutely against the disability insurer. They've, their wrists have been slapped when they get all the way through to a trial. Very rarely does the insurance company succeed in a scenario like that. I, I, I would say right? recently it's been more than the wrists. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> the Blue Cross and Baker case. I mean, that one's just, just a, a watershed case. And so with that in mind, you know, there, there is a real push to try and resolve these claims sooner than later. And insurance companies are keenly aware about the fact of every month that passes is another month that they are exposed to have to pay that LTD benefit. So they are motivated to try and resolve the claims. And, you know, at least in certain jurisdictions in Ontario, there's also a push by the court system to push these claims to mediation. There's mandatory mediation processes available to us and we use them we exercise them to force the insurer to come to the table early so that we can have these meaningful discussions and try and resolve these claims for our clients as soon as we can because we recognize as well that our clients don't have years and years necessarily to litigate and they want to see some closure potentially with the disability insurer as well whether by way of a lump sum settlement or a reinstatement um, and those are definitely discussions that we have with our clients, uh, you know, before the mediation process, so that we can have as you know the highest degree of opportunity for success at the mediation as possible. We come at it prepared. Can't speak for everyone. Having worked on the defense side, I can't speak for every disability lawyer to be as prepared as we are. But I can assure you that if it's in our hands, we're going to do absolutely the best that we can to get that resolution at mediation. Short break, guys. Another email or two is on the way, but here is the number to reach out after the show. 1-855-821-5900. Email is help at disabilityrights.ca. We're coming right back. Hold on. All right, back. Disability Law Show. A few minutes to go, so tuck in. We'll get her done. Uh, Donovan is up next on the email. By the way, you want to send one along anytime, even outside the hour of the show, for sure. James and uh, Tamara have a great team handling those. That's help at disabilityrights.ca. And the good old phone call, one 855 821 5,900. Donovan is up next. This guy's injured my right shoulder. I worked three years ago. I've had two surgeries that have been unsuccessful, and my doctors tell me there is nothing more they can do. 
I've received workers' compensation benefits of $4,800 per month ever since I was hurt, plus coverage for treatment. I just got a letter from my employer saying my health benefits are going to end this year because I haven't been back to work uh, for so long. I'm worried I won't have coverage for disability benefits anymore if I need it. Should I be applying for disability benefits before my coverage runs out? tomorrow? what do you think, pal? Ugh. I'm a little worried about Donovan's timing. Uh, so, so look, when you l- let me start with this: when you've got a disability that arises from an injury or an issue that occurred at work, nothing should stop you from applying to disability, like long-term and short-term, and workers' compensation benefits or WorkSafe in, in BC and other provinces that we practice in. And so. What I'm concerned about for Donovan is that he tells us that he's been off work now for three years, or he injured it three years ago in any event. And so my hope is perhaps he's not been off work too, too long so that he's not out of luck in terms of pursuing those disability benefits, regardless of what's happening with coverage. The bottom line is if you do not apply for disability benefits in a reasonable period of time from when your injury occurred, you are going to be met with the insurance company the disability insurer that is, saying to you, you are out of time. The policies have very specific timeframes in which you need to apply and submit that application for consideration. Usually it's give or take six months within the moment that you were injured and not able to work. And so I don't know if Donovan kept working, but that six-month window is somewhat short. And when you're starting to think about, okay, well, where do I need to apply to? And clearly, you know, he receives a pretty hefty amount from workers' compensation, fine, fair enough. And why is that important is because assuming he applied for disability benefits, assuming the disability insurer would have approved his claim for disability, then the disability insurer is going to look at what other sources of income Donovan is getting. And one of those is this workers' compensation benefit, which is one of the credits or offsets that the insurance company gets against your long-term disability benefit. So it could have been at the end of the day that LTD didn't have to pay anything if the full credit is there, because I suspect the LTD is paid at a lower percentage than what Donovan is getting from workers' compensation. But regardless, if the application isn't in and a decision isn't there from the LTD insurer, you're going to be met with the insurance company saying, you're too late, you're out of time, we've been you know, too much time has passed, we've been prejudiced, we can't review your claim in time, it's not reasonable, and so on. Now look, James will know this too, that there's some case law that's favorable to claimants like Donovan, even if your disability application is late. So I'd, I'd say Donovan put it in regardless. But at the end of the day, you don't want to necessarily be the outlier of cases like that. You want to try and get ahead of these things, especially in a scenario, what happens if workers' compensation benefits stop being paid? And you could still be totally disabled and meet the criteria under the disability policy. And you want to make sure that you can go back to the insurer and say, okay, now you don't get a credit because I'm not getting workers' compensation anymore and I should be getting disability benefits. But the real core issue, I think, that that drove Donovan to email us is, well, you know, I'm going to be without extended health benefits. That's a problem. So it's an employment issue for sure. But leaving that aside... The extended health benefits doesn't necessarily mean that you're disentitled to long-term disability benefits. We talk about this a lot with people reaching out saying, well, I've been terminated, and so you know, I'm, I'm not going to have extended health coverage. Does this mean that I don't have a right to long-term disability benefits? No. If your disability 
predated the end of that coverage. If your disability arose during a time where you were covered and had those benefits, then by all means, you have a right to those benefits if you make a timely application. James? Yeah, I, I'm almost certain that this comes from a very common misunderstanding of how workers' compensation and LTD work. Because when you are injured in the course of your employment and you have coverage for workers' compensation, it is almost invariably going to be the case that the amount, as you mentioned, the amount that you get for workers' compensation is going to entirely offset the LTD amount. And because of that, people are left with the impression that you don't get LTD, that the, that LTD wouldn't apply in that scenario. That's actually wrong. And Donovan's question really shines a light on why that's wrong. You would be entitled to disability the same way anybody else is. In other words, you go through the application, you get approved if you are legitimately disabled from working, and then your benefit is calculated according to the policy. So typically two-thirds of your income, less any offsets. And so in this scenario, you would be approved for benefits, and because of the workers' compensation, it would offset the entire amount. So you would be approved for $0 per month. And so a lot of people faced with that, even if they understood that, would say, well, okay, what's the point of applying? If, if I'm technically approved, I'm getting $0 per month. And the answer is in what Tamar mentioned in her response, which is if workers' compensation cuts you off, then you're left with nothing. If the workers' compensation stops paying you and you haven't applied for your disability benefits and you're now out of time to make that application, you have nothing to fall back on. And so it is really important that you go through the process, even if the result is going to be a zero benefit for as long as workers' compensation is paying you, it's still worthwhile going through that. Maybe they'll deny you, and then maybe you'll have to decide whether it's worth fighting them on that, your long-term disability insurer. But I would at least go through the process. There's nothing lost going through that process and trying to get approved for disability benefits so that you have a safety net in case workers' compensation turns the tap off at any point in the future. And that is it for the week, guys. Appreciate it. You want to reach out now that we're going to exit the door. You can do so. Make that phone call to James or Tamar, 1-855-821-5900. We've used over the course of the hour, help at disabilityrights.ca. That would be the email address. You can also go to mydisabilityquestions.com. And for other questions you want to learn more, simply go to ltdfaq.ca. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.